What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Welcome to Call to Communion. A new week means maybe you have new questions or ones you haven't resolved yet. Dr. David Andrews, glad to take your call. I am Ace McKay and for Tom Price. So go ahead, light up the phones if you like. 833-288-3986. That's 833-288-EWTN. If you're outside North America, remember 1, then 205 271 2985, and you can always email us, ctc at ewtn.com. Glad to have our show team in place, Michael Rich and Jeff, and as always, Dr. David Anders. Ace, how are you today? I'm good. I was thinking of you as I was doing a little vinyl therapy shopping this weekend, and you know, you come across a few Beatle records, you're like, yeah, I wonder if David has this one. So. Well, you know, my, my vinyl collection went by the wayside a long time ago. All right. I actually, I brought the remnants of it actually to the network, oh, a couple of years back and said, have at it, guys, and I distributed <sighs> it. I missed out. So you might have missed that, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, it sort of Got distributed a little bit over the years, so sure. I, I am. I, I confess, I'm a I'm a digital download guy now. So when the cloud goes down, you can come to my house and know that there's plenty of music there to listen go. to. There you go. There you go. It's good. All right. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, again, 833-288-3986, 833-288-EWT. And we're going to start with an email this afternoon as uh, we find out, uh, this is anonymous, uh, saying, I went to a recent Bible study. We got into a discussion about Hebrews 4. 15, uh, where basically I believe and that Jesus was tempted from without and not from within, and yet we are both directions. So how is it? Is Jesus, was he tempted from within? Okay, thanks. So, uh, you know, I, I, the, the distinction that you're drawing of tempted from without and tempted from within is not one that I'm familiar with in Catholic moral theology, all right, but I what you probably mean, I'm going to try to just guess at your sense here is that, you know, if I if I uh, uh, if I wave some illegal contraband in your face and say, here here Ace, receive this stolen record, yes, <laughs> right, you know, that would be temptation from without. Temptation from within, if I understand you, would be uh, Ace actually having an attraction to the contraband record and feeling a draw towards it. Mm-hmm. All right, um, if that's the distinction that you're drawing, then I would say that. Um, uh, Christ has no immoderate desires. Christ has no immoderate desires. So he, he, he wouldn't have been subject to concupiscence, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but he wouldn't be human if he didn't have um, desire, right? And mm-hmm. so uh, when, for example, when he was tempted in the wilderness, when, when the devil offered him food or said, you know, tell these stones to become bread and satisfy, satiate your hunger, well, Christ really did have hunger, he would have been physically hungry, and so he would have had a, a, a compulsion to want to eat, um, but it was not an immoderate desire. It would have been quite proportionate to his nature and to the degree of his fast, but one that he was capable of resisting. So I, I don't have a problem. If you want to call it internal temptation, I don't have a problem of ascribing that to Christ as long as you understand that Jesus's uh, affections were within the bounds of reason. He didn't have any immoderate affections, but he would have had affections. He would have had affections for delectable objects, but not in an immoderate way. 
All right. Thanks for your email. Anytime you want to send those in, ctc at ewtn.com. As uh, we check in, of course, always with our voicemail box to see if you have anything, uh, you can always leave those for us overnight. Uh, but uh, to go back to the email bag, this coming from Russ, he says, uh, the, the main problem that I'm facing right now is my family and I are heated over that I have converted Catholic and I grew up in a Baptist home. Is there a book or maybe an easy guide to help with some of the most common questions that I am facing right now. Oh, sure. Thank you. So if you're coming from a Baptist background and your family's giving you a hard time, um, there's a great book by Carl Keating called Catholicism and Fundamentalism, and it would definitely be applicable for the kind of dialogue that you're that you're uh, engaged in. Yeah, so that would be a good resource. And, of course, this show is a resource, uh, not just on fundamentalists and Baptists, but on all kinds of objections to the Catholic faith. Um, and, uh, and finally, you know, I would counsel you, you don't have to be in the position of being put on the defensive, right? I mean, you're, you can be confident in your Catholic faith. You can be joyful in your Catholic faith. You can be uh, virtuous and vigorous in your Catholic faith. And, and without regard to the question of whether or not you have persuaded or convinced other people that you're right, right? And so th- that's ultimately more important than the question of can you convince your, your Baptist relatives that you made the right decision? Can you live the Catholic faith with generosity? That, that's the real ultimate question. Uh, because they're likely they're not in a mode to receive whatever answer that you could give. I mean, you're, typically those kind of conversations, they'll say, well, what about this? And you answer it, and they go, oh, yeah, well, what about this? And they just keep upping the ante and going to, the idea is not a genuine dialogue to come to a kind of meeting of minds. What they're trying to do is rhetorically defeat you. Mm-hmm. They have a different aim in mind. So that the goal is, how can you undermine that whole enterprise uh, by being more lovingly, virtuously present to your family uh, in a way that puts the lie ultimately, to their rejection of Catholicism in its entirety. But, you know, you, you can, those individual questions can be addressed, and Carl Keating's book is a great place to go. And remaining calm remaining as calm. Yeah, answering exactly. those as well. We, we need a uh, Dr. David Anders app that we can just, when this question comes up, bam, and then just have it so that it's easily accessible. Well, I mean, th- there's, there's plenty of that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I've Keating's book is exemplary in that regard. In my point is that an app can't be, pastorally present to you. An app cannot accompany you in your sufferings. An app cannot listen to you when you're when you're down, right? An app cannot be the face of Christ to you. It can give an answer, um, but sometimes Christ himself doesn't give answers. What he gives is himself. Mm. Amen. All right, it is called to communion with Dr. David Anders. As uh, we get set for our first break, you are welcome to call in, fill up the phones with your questions. 833-288-3986. That's 833-288-EWT. And of course, we have our team in place. So if you are watching us on Facebook or YouTube, hello. Uh, but also you can leave your comments there. And then uh, Jeff Burson will make sure to get those to us so that we can answer them during today's show. So you've got time. 833-288-3986. That's 833-288-EWTN. We've got more with Call to Communion coming up. And also uh, we'll continue with the email bag as well as uh, we get set for your calls and get ready to spend some time together this afternoon as uh, we are ready to hear from you. This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on EWTN Radio. We'll be right back.
And welcome back to Call the Communion with Dr. David Anders as we are set to handle your questions this afternoon. What's stopping you from becoming Catholic? 833-288-3986, 833-288-EWTN. And again, outside North America, one then 205-271-2985. Before we go to the phones, I want to let you know about this weekend. Pretty excited as it is the EWTN's free family celebration happening at the Birmingham Jefferson Civic Complex. That's going to be happening in Birmingham. So as we get set to celebrate not only Mother Angelica's love of the Eucharist, but also the centennial year of her birthday and also getting to be a part of some great live show opportunities with Father Mitch Pacwa, Johnette Williams, and other EWTN TV and radio hosts. You want to find out more, EWTN.com is where you can find out more. And then we hope to see you Saturday. So again, 833-288-EWTN as uh, we head to the phones for Call to Communion. Matt in Texas listening on Guadalupe Radio. Matt, what's your question for Dr. Anders? My question is in relation to Revelation 12, where we talk about the Blessed Mother being the Queen of Heaven. Uh, It also goes on to describe she was with child, and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. Uh, We look at Genesis 3.16, where it equates the first Eve to be, uh, as a result of her sin, uh, which is passed on to all women throughout the centuries of being in pain and great uh, great pain and suffering during childbirth. So how do we relate that to Mary's perpetual virginity, and number two, her immaculate conception? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So the passage that you're describing comes in Revelation chapter 12, and the uh, the relationship of Mary to the woman in that passage is evident, but not entirely straightforward. So I, I think the way Catholic tradition handles this is to see the woman in Revelation as uh, as a type, both of the Church and of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so Mary is the antitype. So there's a that is to say a typological relationship. Uh, and clearly, the, the woman in Revelation 12 has characteristics that can only be predicated of Mary, like she is the woman who gave birth to the child who ruled the nations with the rod of iron. Now, that reference is to Psalm 2. It's a messianic reference, so this is Jesus we're talking about. And her son is caught up into heaven. That's a reference to the ascension of Christ. Um, but there are aspects of her a person that seemed maybe not directly applicable to Mary, uh, for not only the one about crying out in pain that you mentioned, but also um, that uh, that after the ascension that she was taken out into the desert and given a place of refuge by God and this kind of thing. So the way most interpreters understand this is that at one level, this is a reference to the Church. Uh, the Church is our mother, the mother of all those that believe in Jesus, persecuted by the serpent and and, and so forth. And of course, the suffering of the church is uh, palpable and martyrdom and persecution and the like. Uh, but the church is also a type of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And that, that's the way typology typically functions in sacred scripture. So if you look at the way, say, the New Testament reads the servant songs of Isaiah, well, they refer to Christ, but they also refer to the state of Israel. I mean, they tell us explicitly, Isaiah tells us explicitly that the suffering servant is Israel, Israel his servant, Um, and yet it also seems strangely appropriate to speak these prophecies about the person of Jesus. So the the type and antitype are wrapped up together in this one uh, metaphorical figurative image. The same thing seems to be happening 
with the Blessed Virgin Mary in a relationship with the Church, as it's depicted in Revelation chapter 12. Thanks so much for your call, Matt. As we head now to David, who is listening on Christ Our King Radio in Youngsville, Louisiana. David, what is your question for Dr. Anders? Good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm not a cradle Catholic at all, but I'm 70 years old and uh, turned to turn to Catholic to be with my wife and family. And uh, I ran across this book in RCA class by Alan Shrek. I believe his name is pronounced that way. Uh, Catholic and Christianity. You familiar with that book, sir? Um, yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. So I I have not read this text. I have seen it, uh, so I can't really offer any uh, uh, you know any any direct opinion on it. Um, its presence in RCA suggests to me that at least uh, someone in the parish thought that it would be a good instructional book for those entering into their study of Catholicism. Beyond that, I really can't say. Uh, you know, I've, I've read an awful lot of books on this kind of topic, and I can, there are some I can recommend. I mean, the, the go-to place for information on Catholicism is always, of course, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. That's the, the Church's official statement of its own doctrine. If you don't know what the Church believes, you can consult the Catechism. Um, and uh, uh, so that's a great place to go in terms of other sort of, uh, you know, introductions to Catholicism. A lot of people enjoy a book by a fellow named Scott Hahn, Rome Sweet Home, about his journey into the Catholic faith. Uh, those would be two that you might consider. All right. Thanks so much, David. We appreciate your call. That frees up a line at 833-288-3986, 833-288-EWTN. As uh, we give you a chance to fill up the phone lines this afternoon, we'll jump over to email. Hearing from Isaiah, he says, When we were in our mother's womb before baptism, did our soul belong to God in that moment, or did our soul belong to the devil? Yeah, thanks. So... Interesting question. They, you know, everything belongs to God insofar as God made it. And we can talk about being children of God in two senses. We can speak about being children of God in virtue of his creation, in which case everyone is a child of God. We can also speak about being a child of God according to uh, grace and the spirit of adoption in Christ. And that is a, that's sort of, a, you know, child of God 2.0, as it were. Mm. And not everyone is a child of God in the second sense. Everyone is a child of God in the first sense. Um, you know, in terms of thinking about whether the devil has a claim on us, uh, well, the devil's activity in our life is illegitimate. I mean, he acts contrary to the will of God and contrary to our good. He definitely has a sphere of action in which he can do harm, but he doesn't have any kind of legal claim on on. Uh, uh, on my person, right? Mm. And and that's why you know, something like exorcism is effective, right? Because right. he's being cast out of where he has no right to be. All right. Thanks so much for your question. Uh, Isaiah, of course, anytime you want to email your question, cdc at ewtn.com. We're going to go back to the phones. Charles is listening on the EWTN app in Shelbyville, Tennessee. Charles, what's your question for Dr. Anders? Good afternoon, Dr. Anders. Um, I'm calling on behalf of my wife. Um, she is running an OCIA program at our church, and she has a prospective candidate that is uh, wanting to become a Catholic. She has uh, two previous marriages and is currently married, but the husband uh, is, is gone. She's actually trying to work with law enforcement to try to find where the husband is. What we've been told, uh, and there's kind of an uneasy, uh, they're, they're trying to figure this out, is does 
this potential catechist need to have these marriages annulled before she can become a member of the Catholic Church? Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, a um, typically, typically yes, um, but you know, if a person is not living conjugally with someone else, um, and so you know, there's no question of uh, say, you know, fornication. And that, that's the real issue when you have a, an, an irregular marriage, an invalid marriage, that the coupling would be illegitimate because they're not validly married. If she's a single person, um, that might change the equation a little bit. And that's that's something to bring up specifically with your pastor. Um, but, um, yeah. All right, Charles, hope that helps. Thanks so much for your call. 833-288-3986, 833-288-EWTN. As we head over to Bob, listening at EWTN.com in Northeast Washington. Bob, what's your question today? Yeah, yeah, good morning, boys. Um, yeah, my, my question today is about music in churches. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a professional musician. I, I, I retired now, and I've started doing music for churches. I started about a decade ago. Man, I'm really on fire with that, and then... And then someone sends me this video that says, hey, you know, you can't play modern gospel music in churches. That's uh, sacrilegious of some sort. But anyway, it, it really shot me down. I mean, I just, I felt so terrible. I was in the dungeon, and, and I'm going, well, what kind of music am I supposed to be playing that uplifts people, you know? And and so um, I, I I was really, I don't even know how to word this question, you guys. But but I, for some reason, the Lord led me to Psalms 150, and then it just kind of told me, hey, uh, it doesn't matter what the music is, it just has to glorify the Lord. So my question is, what's, there's no soundtrack for the Bible, but what's the Catholic Church say about this? Yeah, thanks, I appreciate the question. So, uh, the Church actually has quite a lot to say about sacred music, and <laughs> because I'm not a, a Church musician, it's not an area of specialty for me, uh, but the Second Vatican Council uh, published a document, <laughs> excuse me, exactly on this question, um, called Musicum Sacrum, Right, and it's available at the Vatican's website. It's you know, Musicom AM Sacram S A C R A M. You can actually read uh, read a lengthy discussion of uh, the, the council fathers about what's appropriate or not in sacred music. But more generally, uh, when you are asking whether you know certain musical genre can be performed, can be celebrated during the liturgy, the Church allows for a pretty wide latitude of genre that are appropriate. I mean, th there has to be a kind of sense of the sacred involved, and they it has to be edifying. Um, and uh, But to a certain extent, that's going to be culturally relative. I mean, what, what is sacred music in one cultural context is maybe not sacred music in another. And um, and, I, and there's a fairly wide degree of latitude. Now, there, there are ideologues, of course, that you'll run into who, who will— insist dogmatically that, well, this form must be ruled out because it violates my sense of what is sacred. Um, those people typically don't speak with the voice of the Church, and you'll find if you were to survey Catholic parishes all operating with the consent of their bishops, you'd find a pretty wide variety of musical genre on display in any given Sunday. And there's a lot of great contemporary stuff that does line up with the readings, but does your sure, church sure, sure. necessarily encourage that? So, uh, Bob, we hope that helps. We appreciate you. And uh, that now frees up a phone line at 833-288-EWT. And, of course, we get a lot of calls overnight, so those are always welcome. So we're going to check in on the voicemail box. Hi, my name is Arnold from Katy, Texas. And my question is, I don't have a good answer why uh, women cannot become priests. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, um, the, the the very short answer is that the Church has no authority 
to ordain women priests, that the Christ uh, gave no instructions in that matter. In fact, the contrary, he ordained only men to the sacred priesthood and to the episcopacy, and the Church has a 2,000-year-old tradition of only doing that. And when the Church does something always everywhere and for everyone in exactly the same way, uh, you sit up and pay attention. And, and all the specific instructions in Scripture about the ordination of individuals to the priesthood presumes their maleness, and of course that's what Christ himself did, and Jesus was male. So that, that's the, the simple answer. We can dig a little bit deeper and give some theological rationale for that. And one of them is that the priest stands in relationship uh, to the congregation as uh, as Christ does to the church, as a husband does to a wife, as a father does to a family, and as his, in his role as the stand-in for Jesus in the sacred liturgy, um, he, he has to figure Christ's nuptial relationship to the church. And so there's something about his person that is liturgically significant. His maleness is significant to the nature of his representation of Christ in the liturgy. All right. Thanks so much for your call. Of course, we want to get yours in, so you still got time. 833-288-EWTN. As we uh, jump over to Atwood, Kansas, uh, listening on Sirius XM. Casey, what is your question for Dr. Anders today? Hi. Um, so I was dating this guy, and he decided he wanted to become a Catholic priest. So obviously we broke up so he could fulfill what he uh, felt like he needed to do, and when we broke up, he he still wanted to be good friends, and he uh, showed me a lot about the Catholic faith, and I told him I, I would like to become Catholic, and he wanted to help me, like, uh, with that and go and talk to the priest and Atwood, but um, my parents uh, don't really like the idea of me becoming Catholic, and it's also really hard for me to uh, hang out with him still because uh, it's just hard to go from saving someone to uh, just being friends with them. And so I'm just wondering what my next step should be. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So. Uh I'm going to give you my personal opinion, and this is just me, and I'm, I'm not speaking in any kind of official capacity for the Church. I'm just speaking as, you know, one Catholic man uh, who's lived in the Church a long time and give you my opinion. You can take it or leave it, take it with a grain of salt. In, in my judgment, this relationship is not a good place for you to discern the question of whether to become Catholic for all the reasons that you stated. Like, you, you have an obvious history with this fellow. You have a romantic past with this individual. Um, that is that is absolutely going to complicate the discernment that you have to make about, in conscience, do I want to be Catholic? Do I want to follow Christ in the Catholic Church? That really needs to be made without reference to um, you know to any kind of romantic attachments in this of this kind. I mean, it'd be different if you were marrying a Catholic, but you're not, and that that I think that complicates it enormously. So. I mean, my radio show is about helping people overcome barriers to become Catholic. So obviously I like it when people become Catholic, but I, but I don't I, I never want to see somebody coerced into becoming Catholic. I don't want to see somebody manipulated into becoming Catholic. I don't want someone to become Catholic out of guilt. Uh, I want someone to become Catholic because they are honestly persuaded in their conscience that this is true. Uh, this is the church that Christ founded, and, and I need to do this for the sake of my soul. Th- that's the kind of conversion I'm interested in, 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 in seeing take place, not, not, not tricking someone into becoming Catholic. 
Um, now, when it comes to the relationship to your parents, that's all the more reason to make this question separate from the question of your relationship to your former boyfriend. Uh, lots of people have problems with their families when they become Catholic. I did when I became Catholic. Christ predicted that. Uh, but you need to be clear in your own mind about your motivations. Casey, we hope that helps. Thanks so much for your call. More of your questions with Dr. David Anders coming up on Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio. And welcome back. This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. I'm H. McKay in for Tom Price as we are taking your calls. What is stopping you from becoming Catholic? 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Of course, outside North America, 1-205-271-2985. And also, you're welcome to submit your questions on Facebook and YouTube, as Carlos has done so. He says, shouldn't communion include a... Ecumenical. Ecumenical. I knew I was going to mess it up anyway. Let's look at that. Uh, uh, ecumenical dialogue. I think there is a need for us to articulate a common Christian uh, heritage and identity in these days. And so he's asking for that. Yeah, well, I mean, the Holy See uh, definitely agrees with you uh, completely. I mean, the, 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 the ecumenical dimension to Catholic identity is, is very evident. It's been present in the Church for a long time, but it's really, really emphasized heavily at the Second Vatican Council, and um, today there exists a, uh, a dicastery for the promotion of Christian unity at the Holy See in the Vatican with the Pope. It's one of his offices uh, to do exactly what you say. And, you know, the Second Vatican Council looked at non-Catholic Christians and said of them that they are Christians and that they possess many elements of truth and sanctification and that we should celebrate those things that we have in common. So, I mean, you're, yes, your position is correct. Now, you know, on my show, I, I, I do sometimes talk about points of commonality. Sometimes I talk about points of difference because a lot of people that are calling me are Christians from some other tradition that are considering Catholicism, and, and typically those points of differences are the stumbling blocks from moving from one tradition to another. So we have to articulate those and explain why the Catholic position is the way it is on this particular issue. But that doesn't take anything away from the fact that there are many common commitments that we share as Christians. Carlos, thanks for your question. Thanks for watching us on YouTube. Again, 833-288-3986, 833-288-EWTN. As uh, we check in with Julia in Washington, uh, listening to us on Sacred Heart Radio. Julia, what's your question? Oh, sorry. Here I am. Yeah, what's your question for Dr. Anders? So I, I have a sister who um, baptized Catholic as an infant and married in the Catholic Church since divorced. Her husband, you know, he made the pledge to let her raise the kids Catholic, but he never did. He didn't support her faith. And so she found faith in, in a non-denominational tradition and um, in 2016, was baptized in um, an Assembly of God's Church, and she just feels like her walk with Christ wasn't strong enough. And so, on Saturday, she's being rebaptized in a Foursquare Church, and I just don't know what to say to her. I mean, I want to help her, but you know, she's not coming to me for spiritual advice, and we've raised our family as Catholics, and. I'm here for her, and I love her dearly, but I really am taken aback by it, and I don't know what to say. I think she's using it for absolution. I think that's what she's looking for. Yeah. She really wants to be serious about her faith, but how do I help her? Yes, thank you. I appreciate the question. 
I, I find it very unlikely that your sister is seeking absolution through this rite. And that's, that's ironic, of course, because baptism is an ablution. It's a, it's a, a washing away of original and actual sin and renewing with our relationship with Christ. St. Paul says we die with Christ in baptism and are raised again with him to new life. So that's the way Catholics understand the sacrament, which we perform only once. We don't ever rebaptize people. If you're validly baptized, you're, there's an indelible mark placed upon your soul. You don't ever have to do the, the rite again. In fact, you, you can't do it again. It's against the church law to attempt to do it again. Um, but that's not typically the way that the Assemblies of God or the Foursquare Church thinks about baptism. So they, they typically, uh, their doctrine is... Like the Catholic Church, they believe that people come into the world with the stain of original sin, although they understand original sin differently, and they think that that original sin needs to be washed away, and that a person needs to come into right relationship with God through Christ, and they typically think that happens by faith alone. Um, so because they also typically think that that, that right-wising with God, that turning of the soul over to God, takes place through an act of personal conversion— a conscious decision to follow God, to confess one's sins, to receive forgiveness, they don't see that taking place in baptism. They don't think that baptism actually has that effect in the soul. They think that that effect is wrought strictly by this psychological act of personal conversion. So what then is the point of baptism if you're Assemblies of God, if you're Foursquare, if you're Baptist? Typically, they see baptism as a, as a kind of ritual sign to the community and to oneself that one has made this commitment to God. And so it has a kind of psychological force and a demonstrative force, but it doesn't actually, through the working of the work, touch the interior life of the soul, except indirectly by way of psychology. Um, so typically, in my experience, when members of these non-Catholic traditions perform or seem to perform the rite of baptism multiple times, uh, what they are seeking is an emotional response to the sacrament, or the quasi-sacrament. They're seeking to generate a certain kind of affectivity, um, you know, certain ideas, certain reflections, uh, certain feelings, in order to deepen their conscious experience of Jesus. Typically, absolution is not what they're seeking, because their theology teaches them that all of their sins, past, present, and future, future too, I will add, are, are absolved and forgiven by that one act of faith. So that's typically not their motivation. In terms of what should you do about it, well, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that an open and honest conversation about the truth of the Catholic faith and the problems with, uh, with Foursquare or Assembly of God doctrine is probably not on the table right now, right? So that's, that's the, that the direct confrontational approach may not be the effective one. Um, in my judgment, it is a good thing in general that your sister wants to deepen her relationship with God, uh, even if she has a misunderstanding of the means. And so, you know, I would love her. I would affirm her desire for intimacy with Christ, uh, her desire to live a moral and spiritual life. Um, you know, I would be available to accompany her in whatever way possible on that journey. But that doesn't require you to affirm her particular doctrinal errors. Julia, hope that helps. Thanks so much for calling. That frees up a line at 833-288-3986. That's 833-288-EWTN. We jump over to Facebook Live. Jeff says, if communion is God incarnate, why doesn't reverence in many churches reflect that? Yeah, so if, if 
uh, mankind is created in God's likeness and image, and each one of us possesses an inherent dignity and a transcendent destiny, why doesn't Christian behavior reflect that? Right? I mean, like the, the, the reasons, the motivations not to sin are great. They're many. They're manifold. And yet Christians sin. Why do we do that? Well, St. James tells us it's because we're drawn away by our immoderate desires and we ignore the pull of reason and the guidance of the Holy Spirit and we do what our clinging flesh uh, urges us to do. And the same thing would be true in church. Now, I, I would like to add that, you know, we, we recently conducted a set of synodal dialogues in the Diocese of Birmingham in obedience to the Holy See, which told all the dioceses throughout the world they had to conduct listening sessions across their diocese and hear what the people of God had to say. And what we found in our, in our study of the Diocese of Birmingham, and I imagine this would be true around the Diocese of the United States, was that there wasn't a single person that showed up for a synod dialogue session that thought we should have more irreverence in church. Everybody there thought they should have more reverence in church. But you know what they did not agree on? What is reverence? So, so it may be that parishes near you are grossly irreverent. But it's also possible that we, could, we might come to church with a predetermined, ideologically driven idea of what reverence looks like, fail to find that, and conclude that our neighbors are irreverent. Um, now, I'm going to stick my neck out here and go out on a limb. When I look to the teaching of Christ, it seems to me that Jesus' primary criterion for reverence was how we treat our neighbors. It had less to do with the position of our body, the physical gestures that we, that we articulate. I mean, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you guys want to tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law like love and justice and mercy. It's not those things that go into the body that make it unclean. It's what comes out of the body that makes it unclean, that evil thoughts from the heart, hatred and fornication and adultery and murder and things like that. And so I typically think following the teaching of Christ that the most reverent church is the one that has the, the highest regard for the least among us and expresses that in charity. And the outward form, well, we should all conform to the rubrics that the church sets for us uh, you know, in the in, in the uh, in the general instruction on the Roman Missal, we should sort of play by the same rule book. But beyond that, there's a, there's room for a lot of liberty in the way the liturgy is celebrated, according to culture and nation and and uh, and other uh, sort of relativizing forces. What what's what's absolute, what never changes. What Saint Paul says is the one thing that matters in Christian worship is charity. Now. Are there churches that lack charity? You betcha. You betcha. But I think that's the ultimate measure of reverence. Jeff, thanks so much for your question. Thanks for watching us on Facebook Live. If you've got a question this afternoon for Dr. Anders, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. In Pendleton, South Carolina, Lee, listening or watching on EWTN-TV. What's your question for Dr. Anders? Uh, yes, I have a question. Okay, I'm a cradle Catholic. And I, I've always wondered, is there any theory or any um, discussion, uh, where, did, where did God come from? Yeah, thank you. That's a fantastic question. Now, the, the, the question, is there any theory or any discussion about this? Oh, boy, is there ever. 
There is so much discussion of this topic. I mean, the, the discussion of this topic is voluminous. You could fill libraries. Actually, people have filled <laughs> libraries with discussions of the topic on the nature of God and God's existence. Um, absolutely. And, and the, probably the most accessible and authoritative treatment of this question you're going to find in the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas. Of course, all theologians address this, but Thomas is the common doctor of the Church. He's kind of the the grand poobah of Catholic theologians, and he wrote a magnificent book, kind of difficult for beginners, but he wrote a magnificent book called The Sum of Theology, or the Summa Theologica, uh, the first part of which is uh, committed entirely to this question. Who is God? How do we understand his existence? Uh, what can we say about it? And it's a deeply philosophical, but it's very authoritative in Catholic tradition, and You'll find, if, if Thomas is inaccessible to you, I'm sure you could find any number of distillations of, you know, St. Thomas's arguments for the existence of God, the nature of God, that kind of thing. There's all kinds of books and videos and articles, many of them on EWTN, that would, that would discuss this. There's a great resource from the Thomistic Institute. These are the Dominican fathers from the eastern province up in D.C., and uh, they've, uh, they've got some wonderful podcasts and videos uh, from their Thomistic Institute all about St. Thomas and all about his doctrines of God. So lots of good resources there for you to explore. But in terms of the specific question, what do Catholic thinks about think about where God came from? Well, uh, let me ask you this question. This is just an analogy, okay? This is just an analogy. W- where do you think the number one came from? Right? Mm-hmm. In other words, can... Like, one isn't a thing, right? Mm-hmm. The number one is not an object I can hold in my hands. It's a, it's a reality of some sort. Like, th- there really is something that the number one is, and we all know what one is. It's not two, and it's not seven, and it's not 322, and it's not an elephant, mm-hmm. and it's not my breakfast. There's a thing called one. Mm-hmm. Well, can, can you imagine one not existing? Like, you could imagine maybe the world not existing. You could get rid of all elephants and all breakfasts and all Catholic radio hosts and take every sort of material item out of existence, and yet this abstract concept, one, would be there, mm-hmm. right? You can't, you can't unthink it. And if, even if there were no one around to think up the number one, oneness would still be a thing. It would be a constituent of reality, okay? Now I want to up the ante a little bit. All right, give you another higher level of abstraction even than one. What about being? All right, not not the being of some object, like, you know, my cup exists, it has being. My, my fountain pen exists, it has being, right? But what about existence as such? The bare fact that there is the possibility of existence mm-hmm. of concrete material objects. Could it be that being once was not, it's really unthinkable. Like, if there's something, then being and the possibility of being are woven into the fabric of reality, right? Well, here's the really subtle and beautiful idea that Catholics have about God. God is the being that beings have. God is the very act of being itself. Um, God is the necessary condition of anything else coming into being. And as such, God's existence is necessary. It can't not be. 
It's impossible for God not to exist, just like it's impossible for the number one not to exist, or it's impossible for being itself not to exist. And so God is unchanging, eternal, has always been there, will always be there, undergoes no change of state or quality or thought or emotion at all. God is an utterly static, eternal, infinite being. And simple, simple, not simple to understand, but simple in the sense that he doesn't have any parts. God's not divisible. You know, you, you don't have more of God in an elephant than you do in a mouse, right? Um, uh, and, and very much like being, very much like, say, the number one. He's not big one, little one. There's just oneness, right? There is mm-hmm. God. And that's what we say about God. That's, that's who God is. That's what God's nature is. It's the, it is necessary being. And that's a pretty high and subtle idea. And Catholics have spilt mountains of ink and paper on the doctrine. But yeah, that's what we teach. Lee, thanks so much for your question. We hope that helps. We want to let you know this afternoon as you plan your rest of the day, uh, Al Cresta with Cresta in the Afternoon, taking a uh, Catholic lens and really putting it through personal, authentic, human, real situations and daily conversation. What does that look like for you this afternoon? Well, check it out. For Eastern on EWTN Radio, Cresta in the Afternoon. This is called the Communion with Dr. David Anders as uh, we are taking your calls. 833-288-EWTN and Rudy in Los Angeles uh, listening on John Paul II Catholic Radio. Rudy, what's your question? Yes, thank you. I was married when I was 20 years old. My girlfriend was pregnant, so I tried to do the right thing. We got married in the Catholic Church. It didn't last. I got an annulment, and I married again right away in the Catholic Church. That didn't last. I subsequently got married again, like 10 years later, to a wonderful woman who shares my faith deeply. And I want to know if I can qualify for the convalidation so I can receive the Eucharist. Okay, thanks. Really, let me ask you a question. So you had you had marriage number one annulled. Marriage number yes. two. Marriage number two ended. Did you get an annulment for marriage number two? No. That's what you have to do. Okay. Right. You you need you need to talk to your pastor about this. You need to explain to him that you're you're in a civil marriage right now to a woman who's Catholic and you both love the faith and you love one another. You'd like to have your marriage convalidated in the church, but you know to do that you're going to have to have your previous relationship annulled. And so, can he help you with that? It, you just need to start the paperwork and get the get the ball rolling. Rudy, does that help? And an annulment. Yep, you're going to need an annulment for the second marriage, because the first one you already got an annulment. In order to have the third marriage be convalidated, you're going to have to have the second marriage annulled so that, so that the Church knows that you're not, you're not linked to anybody else. You don't have, you're not bound by the marriage state to somebody else so that you can lawfully enter into a marriage with the woman that you're with now. Thanks so much for your call, Rudy. We appreciate it. That does free up the line. we got a few minutes before we uh, continue at 833-288-EWTN. Uh, Katie chimed in on Facebook Live. She says, was Judas an ordained priest, had his feet washed too, and ha- or had he left already for his wicked mission? Yeah, that is a great question, and we don't know, right? There are differences of opinion about whether Judas was present. I mean, you know, the gospel tells us that Jesus said at one point to him, you know, it's the guy who's going to eat the bread that's dipped in the bowl, and I'm dipping it and giving it to Judas, and he's the fellow, and then Satan enters into him, and Christ says, go do what you need to do, and Judas, uh, he skedaddles out of there, right? Did that happen before the institution 
of the Mass or after. And the text is ambiguous on this, and so we don't know if Judas was there for the consecration or not, which is, of course, also when he instituted the sacred priesthood. Don't know the answer to the question. Don't know. Just don't know. All right. Well, we good question. As we continue to take your calls, always voicemails coming in overnight. Let's check in on our voicemail box. What is the Catholic conception of Deuteronomy 6.4? Thank you. Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So Deuteronomy 6.4, of course, is the the famous Shema, Hero, Israel, the, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Right. Um, so uh, Catholics obviously believe in the unicity of God. We believe in the oneness of God. Um, and, uh, uh, and we believe that people shouldn't worship any god other than God. No, they should have no gods before uh, the true God. So no, no practicing idolatry. Um, you know, no, uh, no mixed um, loyalties here. Uh, there's only one God. We should worship him alone. So now, you know, there's a, there, there can be all kinds of larger historical critical questions about the relationship of Deuteronomy 6-4 to the developing tradition of Jewish monotheism and Christian monotheism. Um, you know, can you pack the entire Catholic doctrine of God into that one verse? And I think clearly you can't. Right? There's, a, there's doctrinal development within Scripture, within the tradition. Um, but, uh, but that verse certainly can be accommodated to the Catholic understanding of God, to be sure. Excellent. Email coming in from Sam. He says, uh, I was watching a televangelist, and he was very emphatic that the book of Revelation has things to say that would shut down the Catholic Church. Is there anything in the book of Revelation that suggests that? Well, if, if I believed that the book of Revelation shut down the Catholic Church, I would not have become Catholic, right? Yep. And yeah, n- nor would the, the, the armies of Catholic biblical scholars that have poured over the book of Revelation and all the scriptures, they certainly wouldn't have remained Catholic if they thought that sacred scripture uh, undermined the Catholic Church. Furthermore, the Catholic Church would not have put the book of Revelation in the canon of the New Testament if the Catholic Church thought that the book of Revelation undermined the Catholic Church. And we, we have the book of Revelation as part of sacred scripture, because the fathers of the church and the bishops of the church declared that Revelation is part of the Catholic canon of the Bible. So it would be be strangely (laughs) self-defeating to canonize a book that undermined your authority to canonize that book. Yeah, it's very true. All right, of course, anytime you have questions, you can always submit those through email, like Sam did, at uh, ctc at ewtn. Dot com. That's ctc at ewtn.com. And you've still got a couple of minutes. If you do have a question, you can get through at 833-288-EWTN as we go back to voicemail. You were just discussing that we have to look to the New Testament to uh, help us interpret the Old Testament. Um, and we look to the teachings of Jesus uh, with anti-slavery. And in today's culture, it makes sense that we can fight for that. And we have the power to do that. And I think that makes perfect sense. Does that same logic now apply to homosexuality uh, in the Catholic Church? Um, yeah, thank you. thanks. I really appreciate the question. So to, to put it in context, the caller wants to know, I, I've mentioned before that we, we don't take the, the legislative, uh, civil legislative prescriptions of the Old Testament at face value as if they applied without qualification to the Christian moral life that we read the Old Testament in light of the New and in light of the teaching of Christ. And even though the Old Testament calls for things like the death penalty for adulterers and disobedient children, 
Um, Christ adamantly refused to prosecute the law against adulterers in the New Testament. And he said, let the one without sin cast the first stone, etc. And he points rather to the creation ordinance itself, God creating man in his own image, male and female, uh, and the dignity of the human person implied therein as the ultimate standard for evaluating moral judgment. So that's Jesus' position. Does that apply to our treatment of homosexuality as well? Of course it does, absolutely. So, you know, the, the Church does not advocate, say, the execution of homosexuals, which you would find in Old Testament legislation. It doesn't—the the, 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 the civil legislation of ancient Israel does not constrain uh, the moral doctrine of the Catholic Church. Now, uh, sometimes when somebody might ask that question, they might they might be looking for a way to evade the Church's position that human sexuality belongs only uh, in the context of heterosexual marriage, and they might try to wrangle Christ in defense of that doctrine. That's not the way Church understands Jesus, right? That That when Christ gives us the twin command of love of God and love of neighbor, uh, we understand that the true love of neighbor entails a rational understanding of the good of the human person, discernible as the natural law, right? And so that would definitely constrain our sexual behavior. It's it's not a loving thing. It's not loving my neighbor uh, to take human sexuality outside that context of one man, one woman created by God from the beginning uh, to be fruitful and multiply. So there's nothing unloving about the Church's position on human sexuality. Uh, but yes, in general, do we interpret all the laws of the Old Testament, including the ones governing sexual behavior, uh, in light of the teaching of Christ and the natural law? Absolutely, we do. All right. Uh, I'm not sure we're going to have time to get to Tommy today. So, Tommy, if you'd like to call back tomorrow, feel free to do so. And, uh, of course, we appreciate any and all calls that came in today. And you can submit yours through email uh, if you have some time at ctc at ewtn.com. Uh, that's going to wrap up a Monday edition of Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. Of course, we will be back tomorrow with more of your questions. So uh, feel free to call in. And remember, tonight's Encore. If you want to hear that, you can do so 11 p.m. Eastern and on demand at ewtn.com. WTN.com slash radio. You can also listen on our mobile app. So we want to say thank you to you and also to our show team, Michael Rich and Jeff, for making today possible. I'm Ace McKay in for Tom Price. Remember to let God define who you are, and we'll see you back tomorrow here on Call to Communion on EWTN Radio.